Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me in the studio today is my colleague Leonora Walters. And we're also delighted to welcome a special guest, James Baxter, a partner at Tideway Wealth, who will be commenting on stories in this week's magazine. Now in today's show we're going to look at the new dividend tax rules and also how to give your portfolio a drastic deep clean. We we'll also have some updates on Venture Capital Trusts and Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust. A new regime for dividend taxation announced in um, the summer budget will mean investors with large portfolios could pay a lot more tax unless they plan ahead and make use of their various allowances. Leonora, you've been investigating who will be hit hardest and what they can do about it. Um, could you start by telling us what the, the new rules are? Yes, uh, these rules come into force in April 2016. And what's happening is the 10% tax credit that you currently get on dividends is being scrapped and everybody instead will have a £5,000 tax-free dividend income allowance. Now, above that, dividends will be taxed at 7.5% for basic rate taxpayers, 32.5% for higher rate taxpayers, and 38.1% for additional rate taxpayers. Now, the way this is going to work out for taxpayers is that non-payers will see no change, and basic rate taxpayers won't see any change with dividend income under £5,000. But above that rate, then you will start to pay 7.5%. Now, higher rate taxpayers, it's slightly different. In, to a certain extent, they'll be better off if they make dividends up to 21,667, they'll be better off under the new regime. But if the dividend income exceeds that, then um, they'll be worse off because they'll be paying dividends at uh, 32.5%. And for additional rate taxpayers, and that's people whose earnings are taxed at 45%, um, they'll be better off under the new regime as long as their dividend income doesn't exceed £25,401, those were break-even points. And the government's done a sort of estimate. The government says that those who receive significant dividend income, for example, because they've got large shareholdings of more than about £140,000 will pay more tax. And um, that's I think that's roughly based on a calculation of the current FTSE all share yield. In terms of who might be particularly affected, one particular group would be company owners who pay themselves um uh, let's say a small salary and um, large dividends, so they may need, need to rethink what they do. Um, I think you know what everybody will need to do going ahead is um, some tax planning because there's actually lots and lots of ways that you can cut your dividend um, tax bill with careful financial planning. I mean, obviously, mm. the, the, the this uh, dividend tax applies to the investments that you're not holding in tax wrappers, yeah, such I mean, that's as individual one. savings yeah. accounts. ISAs and yes. pensions, um, you know, that's one. I believe if your personal allowance isn't um, used to offset income tax, um, then, you know, if you were just relying on dividend income, that it can be also offset a 
against VAT, and VAT rises to £11,000 um, next April. So there's a- actually, I mean, you, um, even with, with a dividend tax allowance and a personal allowance, um, that's, you know, that's already £16,000 um, that you can offset. And then in your ISA, um, you know, you can invest... Um, more than £15,000 a year. So there are plenty of shelters. Um, and there's also ways you can um, organise your taxation. For example, if um, you're in a couple, you both have allowances, you can pool them together, transfer assets to your spouse, you've got lower earning spouse. We've actually, in this week's magazine, if you have a look at this week's magazine, we set out seven ways in which you can reduce or mitigate your tax on dividends. Okay, well, um, James, um, obviously you're, you're you're an expert in um, in financial planning in general. So, um, try what, our best. Yeah. <laughs> what what are your tips on uh, how people can think about this new dividend tax? Yeah, I, I think uh, Leonora summed it up beautifully. I mean, it is complicated. I, I always find dividends incredibly difficult to work out what the real tax rates are, um, because you know there there's the corporation tax that's paid first, and then the credits and everything else. So. Um, I think the, one of the key points that Leonora made, I would emphasise, is I do think it's a tax that's largely aimed at people using service companies and dragging out dividends um, rather than paying PAYE and, and thereby avoiding national insurance and things like that. So I think for most savers you know, who are using their ISA allowances and have got money in their SIPs and maybe have got some directly held investments, it'll probably not have such a big impact. Um, and as Leonora says, if there's careful planning done between a couple particularly so that the you know if you've got things that are paying dividends they're owned by the person with the lowest amount of tax but some Um, of our readers who do have very big uh, sort of direct shareholdings that aren't held in a tax wrapper might think twice about d- yes. you know, the administrative burden of moving their assets to their wife or you know selling up you know yes and I think it's difficult I think there's always this issue of the um, tax uh, tail wagging the investment dog so you've just got to be a little bit careful because I mean I know for a fact just you know in the last uh, couple of days since the announcements or in the last week you know, there's a lot of um, offshore insurance bond salesmen rubbing their hands with glee because they think this will be a driver to to sell more people offshore bond uh, tax wrappers, which allow you to roll up your um, uh, your income and, and not pay those taxes. But, you know, what I would say there is just be a little bit careful because it is only about an extra seven and a half, eight percent tax on the dividends. And that could be easily offset by the costs of running one of those offshore vehicles. And then there's always other issues. For example, those vehicles don't allow you to use your capital gains tax allowances and they don't allow you to you know, generate capital gains. Generally, everything's taxed as income and capital gains tax rates are generally lower. So, you know, you just got to be a little bit careful about um, doing things for tax reasons um, if, if it messes up what are really good investments in the first I think, instance. I think the capital gains tax point, uh, allowance point that you raised is is, quite, is one that a lot of our, our investor readers will be missing. They'll be thinking purely about what income they can take from their portfolio, not that they can use that quite yeah. generous allowance yeah. every year. Uh, absolutely. It's yeah. a real bugbear of mine, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we, we spend a lot of time trying to help um, people get the right assets into the right accounts. And actually, very few people use their annual capital gains tax allowance in this country, and capital gains tax rates are significantly lower than income tax rates. And what you end up, you know, what you see all the time um, is people with, you know, very growth-orientated investments sitting in their ISAs and their pension accounts, uh, and then 
other investments that are generating income being held personally. And, you know, that's really the wrong way around, because if you hold the growth generating assets personally, you're going to pay virtually no tax on them. You can use two lots of allowances. You can shift between spouses, all those clever things. And, and, you know, it's generally quite easy to avoid capital gains. So don't put those things in where you're you know, where you'll benefit from an income tax wrapper, use the income tax wrapper for things that generate income and hold the capital gains type vehicles personally would be my advice. And that's a really good tip for, for anyone who's at whatever le- uh, level they are, at yes, completely. whatever period they are yeah. in their investment yeah. life cycle. Yeah, I know. mean, most, most yeah. investors are going to want some mix of income type orientated investments and capital growth type investments. And it's just a question of looking at yourself as like having a coat with several pockets on it. You've got your ISA pocket, you've got your pension pocket, you've got your personally owned pocket. And what what bits of your investments do you put in which pocket is what I would say, you know, people should look at and review. Well, those are great tips there. And thanks, James. Um, another thing that was raised in the um, summer budget um, um, is um, something a change to venture capital trusts. Now, some investors who are affected by the new dividend tax and are happy to take higher risks might be considering venture capital trusts. These, these invest in small early stage companies and they offer tax relief when you're investing of up to 30% and then their profits are paid as tax-free dividends. Um, Leonora, how are the rules changing for venture capital trusts? Yeah, um, venture capital trusts um, are not going to be able to invest in management buyouts um, at all um, under rules um, proposed in the budget. Now, as rules stand at the moment, they can't put what's known as the qualifying money into these and haven't been able to since April 2012. But qualifying money is only 70%. So um, VCs have been able to put in 30% of what they raise into MBOs. And they also um, got around the ban in a number of other ways. For example, investing money raised before April 2012 and some other ways. Uh, now, the reason, um, I suppose, this is significant is um, generous VCTs in particular favour um, management buyout investments and generous VCTs are the ones which um, typically pay out large, generous tax-free dividends. Um, now, if um, this change goes ahead and their investment universe is restricted, um, you know, obviously that could affect the level of returns going forward. Um, since the budget um, the, the NVM, the Northern Venture Funds, have actually suspended the dividend reinvestment scheme. And um, reasons given were um, sort of like for the next two years, they're confident they can pay dividends with their current investments. But as these mature and they sell them on, they don't actually know what the future is for um you know, how are they going to invest, um, you know, and what's going to be in it. So they don't want to commit people um, to to that until they have a clear idea. Uh, now, nobody's um, said exactly what's, what they're going to do or what's going to happen. But, um, say, for example, Maven have indicated that, um, they're another generous VCT, Maven, um, they, they've indicated that, you know, if, if this does go ahead, they might do let fewer share issues because... Um, you know, it's a whole area of attractive investment. So I think what it means for for um, basically for investors and in, in VCs teasers, um, you know, this um, attractive dividend stream um, that they you know had from uh, generous venture capital trusts 
it's being put into question because um, an area of lucrative investment is potentially being closed off um, in the future. So it's a high-risk area and really you, you always mm. have to tread carefully here. Yeah, but, well, but... they're not mainstream investments. No. They're for, you know, higher rate taxpayers who've used up their pension and IES allowance and need another, um, let's say, tax-efficient area. So this is, you know, this isn't going to affect most people. But for VCT investors, um, the, um, yeah, the level of generous um, dividends is, is in doubt. Oh dear. Well, um, James, who, who do you think venture capital trusts are suitable for in in general? Have you? Yeah. Well, I think I think it's a classic example of what the government has been doing in a range of areas on tax, you know, schemes. Is that they really are clamping down on anything that it looks like kind of a manufactured type structure. Um, and venture capital, by the description, really was, you know, it's been it's a allowance that's been around for many many years. And it's supposed to encourage investment in smaller companies. And generally, smaller companies don't produce dividends. You know, you would be buying them for long-term capital gains, and most smaller companies want to reinvest their profits to try and grow. So the fact that they were able to engineer these um, uh, higher dividend payouts and the VCTs provide tax-free dividends, so this became a very nice way of generating tax-free income for higher-rate taxpayers. It wasn't quite what the government originally wanted the allowance for, and it's perceived as a bit of a tax giveaway, so you know they've closed it down. So I think you know uh, uh, it comes back to looking at the investments first and the tax second. You know, the VCT market will probably shift back more towards the traditional high growth, uh, high risk, small company investment. Get it right, it's fantastic and you can make very tax efficient gains. Get it wrong and you're going to lose most of your money. And and I think the type of schemes that were trying to provide some sort of guarantee and, you know, take some of the risk out of that structure and pay higher dividends, they're going to be the type of schemes that are going to uh, come most uh, under the cost from this sort of change. Thanks, James. Um, now, you know, on, on the subject of, of what, you, what you're actually holding in your portfolio, let's turn to this week's portfolio clinic. Um, we're featuring a 76-year-old investor, Keith, who has a very long list of investments. He's actually got £186,000 in his portfolio, and it's spread across 57 holdings. Uh, that's including direct company shares, investment trusts and open-ended funds. Now, James, you were one of the experts on um, this portfolio and you didn't really see any logic in uh, Keith's portfolio construction. And I'm afraid we do see many um, DIY investors in their 60s and 70s who have portfolios that have this very eclectic mix of investments that they've built up over a long period of time. So where, where, James, do you think they can start if they want to start doing a deep clean of, of their portfolio? Yeah, so, you know, let me say straight away, obviously, you know, I'm a professional portfolio manager. It's what we do for a living. So, you know, we have a little, I, I guess we have a slight conflict of interest, which we could, should disclose up front. I'm a, actually a great believer in people doing investments themselves. And, and uh, I think uh, it's a, a lot of people get a lot of enjoyment out of it, a lot of satisfaction, and actually pr- end up, some of them, producing fantastic returns. But I think you've got to um, really sit back as a, if you're going to do this stuff yourself and really think, what am I going to do? And, and am, am I really doing it just because I like doing it and it's a bit of fun? Or am I doing it to make money? or to control risks and, and, you know, what's my motivation for doing it? Am I just trying to avoid fees? What am I doing? So 
I guess when we looked at this portfolio, you know, as you said, Moira, the, the overriding impact is that there's a lot of holdings mm-hmm. uh, and it's a mixture, you know, it's a, a completely eclectic mix of, uh, of individual shares. So just sort of taking the two things, um, splitting it between the sort of funds and the shares, and I guess that's probably what you see a lot. We do see them yeah. mixed up, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just yeah, people yeah. like, you know... I mean, we, we often say you should have core, cores of funds yes. and then have your satellites yeah, of shares absolutely. around, which is a good, a simple strategy for people to follow, you know. And actually, yeah. a lot of our investors, funnily enough, who, who come to us for their portfolios managed, they will go off and buy individual shares. I mean, I've got a classic example this week of a lady who just makes us look silly because she's just doubled her money in Netflix. Uh, and we haven't doubled her money, <laughs> and so uh, and she, you know, she she works in uh, media uh, and she knows the sector pretty well, uh, and uh, and she's done something which is very interesting because uh, there's no way she could have approached any kind of professional stockbroker or a wealth manager and and have made that investment because unfortunately we all work under compliance rules. We're all trying to manage risk. We're trying to do things logically. We're trying to spread risk for investors. And, and what we can't do is make outsized bets like that on one particular stock, and particularly not a stock like Netflix, which is you know, highly valued. The propensity for loss of capital is enormous. But you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's clearly a market leader in a very exciting space, and it's just doubled in value. It's probably, I think it's the top performing stock in the world or something ridiculous. Anyway, uh, what she's been able to do uh, and, and what you know your readers can do is you can get to know one or two shares very well you can follow them very well you can watch the prices and you can buy and sell on those shares in a way that you're never going to get that kind of investment from a professional firm because they're just not going to do it because of for the reasons I've yeah, be for, for regulatory it's, compliance reasons all sorts of things it's regulate it's yeah. a nightmare to manage for a firm if you've got you know lots of you know two or three hundred clients and you're trying to manage one position for each client you just can't do it it's practically impossible it's regulatory dangerous <laughs> uh, nobody's going to do it for you but it is you know it's undoubtedly an extremely good way of making money and it and, it, and I can tell you from her reaction that nothing feels better than making an investment like that getting it right and knowing that you've outsmarted all the professionals because she's done better than pretty much every fund manager on the planet this year it's fantastic so you know so I would say if you take the individual shares, um, rather than going out there, I mean, it, it, you know, I get the the general principle is, and I think perhaps what some people think they're doing is that they're going to go and buy uh, 30 or 40 stocks uh, for diversification benefits. Well, you know, the chances are, I'm afraid, that they're not likely to be able to outsmart professional fund managers with 30 or 40 stocks. It's just not going to happen. The, the chances of that happening is pretty slim, to be honest, because they, you know, much as we're criticised, uh, we, there are an awful lot of smart people working in financial services and funds, and they are, you know, they're analysing shares. They understand them very well. And they, you know, some of them do a pretty damn good job. And so, I think if you're going to end up buying thirty shares, you may as well buy a fund. It's better to do that. But what you can do as a private investor is you can buy four or five shares and do something very different than you can do. And if you can size those investments correctly so that you're comfortable with the amount of money you're putting at risk in those shares, it's an investment that you can't buy anywhere else for the reasons I've outlined. It's a fantastic opportunity. And the platforms that are available today now, you know, they allow you to buy shares. They allow you to buy funds very easily. And I would say you know, stick to the funds for your core capital. But, you know, if you want to have some, if you've got some strong views and some conviction around some shares, get to know them very well, do your research, work out, watch, track the prices for a little bit, 
and um, and you know have a go because it because it's it's it, it can be done. Well, I think yeah. what you what you just said there about four, four or five shares is really interesting yeah. because this week I met a a fund manager who'd actually he'd moved firms and he'd been out of the he'd been out of a, an actual job as a fund manager for eighteen months and I said to him how did you invest did you invest during that time and he said yes so how did you invest and he said I ha- only had five company shares in my portfolio uh, I went very concentrated I did what I can't do when I'm actually doing my, my job and yes. if, if, if you're you know if you're in a, a an open-ended or a closed-end fund which mandates that you own 60 70 stocks these managers who would probably own you know personally well, they, if they, they could have to, yeah, yeah you know they uh, they would concentrate it right down and and that you know I think I know you've uh, done run articles in your uh, magazine before about closet trackers and and actually when you go into the fund management world trying to find fund management who uh, fund managers and funds where there is sufficient scope for managers to have a bit more conviction and avoid the index because you know the odds are highly stacked against you and you very quickly get to the index solution if you're not careful so you know just thinking about the funds for a minute I think he had 40 funds, is that right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yes, it, so, it was a lot. I mean, know, there were lots of, some of them were investment trusts, which do, you know, act, very actively manage their, yes, their portfolio yeah, holdings. Yeah, but, and, and yeah. I think, again, investment trusts, uh, and I know you've got some great fans of those in your readers, mm-hmm. um, they are, again, they're the sorts of things that you're going to be able to do more yourself than in uh, uh, with a professional fund manager because investment trusts are quite difficult for fund managers and portfolio managers to look after because uh, they're relatively illiquid, uh, not for private investors unless you're investing large sums of money. But uh, we've had experiences even, um, you know, if you try and sell a few million pounds worth of uh, investment trusts on one day, you quite quickly run up against the liquidity issues and we start moving the Mm. price. So that that makes it quite difficult for so us. So it would only be the very large investment trusts that portfolio managers can recommend. Exactly, yes, where yeah. there's sufficient daily trading going on that they can trade. In, you know, I mean, if, you, if you're managing a billion pounds worth of private client assets and you want to move 5% out of one investment trust into another, that's a lot of money. Uh, and the market just isn't liquid, liquid enough to do it. So I think investment trusts are a great area for private investors to focus on. Again, it's something they can't get you know, easily done uh, by professional managers. And um, and they're a good story. But, you know, the more you buy, the more the statistics are telling you you're going to come back to the index, less fees. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, uh, each of these funds is going to have 50, 60 stocks in it. So every time you add another fund manager, you've got another 100 stocks. Uh, and the more stocks you own, ultimately, the statistics are just compelling that you're just getting pulled back towards the index all of the time. And then you would be just much better you know, buying a the, you know a, a global MSCI World Index for point one of a you know a, a per annum charge and and avoiding all the fees. Well, we've been talking a lot about um, investment trusts there, and one one investment trust that we looked at closely in this week's magazine, and that many investors may be holding in their portfolios is Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust. Now, this has been managed for many years by um, emerging markets veteran Mark Mobius, but he's now stepping down as lead manager. Leonora, you've been looking at this story. Who's going to take over? Yeah, um, one of uh, his colleagues, Carlos Hardenberg, um, a managing director in the Templeton Emerging Markets Group, is taking over in um, October. 
Um, that said, um, Dr. Mabias um, is going to continue to be a portfolio manager on the trust, just not the lead manager. And um, he'll continue to work in the Templeton Emerging Markets Group with research and investment. So um, he's definitely going to still be an influence, um, just not leading it. Now, he's, new, in, he's in his 70s now, he's isn't 78, he? He's 78, yeah, actually. Yeah, right, yeah. 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 The new manager, it's quite interesting. He's actually a frontier market specialist. Now, um, Templeton says, you know, Everything remains the same in terms of investment process and everything. But um, analysts have said, you know, is the trust going to, you know, is it going to have more frontier? So, you know, that remains to be seen. The other important influence on the trust is one of the senior analysts. Now, he, he continues. Um, Ch- um, Chet and Segal is a senior analyst and investment trust. And he's staying on. And he's actually um, a small cap specialist. So, um, yeah, some, you know, some interesting people taking it on. So, um, yeah, it remains to be seen where it goes. But the, the bigger issue with this trust, though, is, is performance, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, certainly re- need to do something. recently it's not mm. been looking great. No, I mean, it's underperformed for, you know, it's the MSCI Emerging Market Index for five of its past financial years, and it's underperformed on a cumulative basis. So whatever is done, something, you know, radical needs to be done to try and improve performance of its investment trusts. Because it's fair enough to say that Emerging markets have had a bad time, but it's underperformed the index, so it's you know it's um it's it's done done worse. Um, James, do you have any any thoughts on Templeton emerging markets? No, Mark, it's interesting. Mark Mobius has been somebody you know. I've been in doing this for nearly thirty years now, and he was an old man when I started. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I met him on uh, on one of those PIMS um, sessions where you know we all went on these boats and listened to all the fund managers. Uh, and that would have been at least 20 years ago. And he was, you know, he felt like an old man then. And right. so he's an even older man now. I mean, clearly hugely talented, um, a, a real character. Uh, I think, uh, Leonora, you <laughs> you have some experience of uh, asking him questions at various events. But, um, you know, and, and somebody who's, who, you know, we... We saw as almost kind of the god of emerging markets for a long time. And Templeton was, you know, a fantastic... Um, is a fantastic example of it's almost like an investor's dream really because what you're you, you've got there is a global emerging market fund you know with really good management it's what everybody would really like to buy but it just shows you how managers can have you know sustained periods of underperformance and you do have to look at these things and um actually i owned quite a lot of templeton emerging market myself in 2008 2009 2010 but i must admit i got rid of it um uh, you would have been stung then. Were yeah, you? no, yeah, I, I, mean, I got, yeah. I got, I got yeah. quite badly stung in the in the collapse, but actually managed to sell out. It was one of the one of the better investments I made that actually came back and was worth more after the financial crisis than it because actually emerging markets stormed back. If you remember, mm-hmm. uh, in two thousand and nine, uh, they were the you know the sharpest recovery sector, but post 2009 it's actually been a really hard and difficult uh, market to be in and um, if you look at some of the more uh, global and uh, funds that can invest in um, you know in the in the main markets as well as the emerging markets so we've got an even broader discretion so if you look at things like Scottish Mortgage or Fundsmith you know where they really are you know they can go into emerging markets if they want or they can be in the main markets if they want you know they've left a lot of these specialist funds uh, you know in in the dust basically over the last um, five years in particular and I think that's a lot of that is to do with the strength of the US market and the investment returns they've been able to make in that main US NASDAQ and uh, 
and the S&P 500. So, I mean, I mean, would, would you buy back into <laughs> would I buy back into emerging markets yeah, now? No, I mean, I, I, you know, now I don't know, but I think that um, uh, actually, if a colleague of mine who's a, who's a really sort of quite you know die in the woods equity fan, he would he always says that you know that the later stage of a of a really big equity bull market is emerging markets and. And emerging markets haven't uh, recovered as as well as main markets, and that may be a, 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 a quite a strong indication that we haven't seen the end of this bull market yet. And therefore, you know, you would expect um, emerging markets to be strong at the back of a bull market cycle, because it's kind of like the most risky bit that everybody again goes into, and then they go up an awful lot, and then they come down an awful lot. <laughs> it's, the, it's the general uh, uh, scheme of things. So yeah, there'll be a there'll be a definitely be a time for emerging markets, and those guys have got you know the resources and the global reach to deliver a really good solution, and and the, the, it should be a great fund. So we just have to wait and see whether they can deliver the goods. I think. Yeah, great. Well then. Um- Thank you for, for your insight there, James. That was really interesting. Um, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. So thank you to James Baxter of Tideway Wealth and to Leonora Walters of The Investor's Chronicle. You can read more about the new dividend tax, how to deep clean your portfolio, venture capital trusts and Templeton Emerging Markets in this week's issue of Investor's Chronicle. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.